0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa, who today joins us from beautiful Berlin, Germany. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I got to say after what we've been doing this podcast now for almost five years, I think. And over the course of these five years, I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I've been truly Kind of shocked and surprised by the news that I see on uh, on China Africa relations. Most of the stuff is a slow boil, and we kind of see things develop and as they come. And then last Friday, uh, I'm going about posting onto Facebook as you and I normally do throughout our day, and there it was, bam! You know, China announces the a commitment to phase out legal domestic manufacture and sale of ivory products. Now, this is the topic that you and I have been talking about almost from the beginning that the Chinese political system, whoever it is whether it's the leadership, the bureaucracy, is just completely been tone deaf and if only they were to phase out the the, the domestic sale and the production and manufacturing of ivory, boy, the PR bonus that they would get from that would be huge. There it is on Friday, Cobus. Here it came. (laughs) And it was really kind of a surprise. And so I kind of blasted out on Twitter and Facebook. And it surprised me a little bit, the reaction that I got, when I kind of started putting it out across social networks. Whereas Chinese people were saying, wow, this is really great. And Westerners, who have been very, very vocal on our Facebook and Twitter accounts, were saying, meh, yeah, we'll see. And it was just kind of this very kind of lukewarm reaction. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to kind of go deep diving into this issue. So we've invited Peter LaFontaine, who's a campaign officer at the International Fund for Animal Welfare in Washington, D.C. For those of you not familiar with IFAW, uh, it's a U.S.-based NGO in, uh, in, based out of Massachusetts. We're joining them from Washington and that they work for animal welfare and conservation, uh, not just in Africa, but around the world. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on. Well, let me first kind of back up a little bit and kind of paint a a little bit of the the picture of what happened last with last week's announcement. Uh, It started with a normal kind of ivory crush, which over the past couple years has become a rather regular occurrence in China, where they take tons of ivory. In this case, six hundred and sixty-two tons of ivory and destroy it. But at that event, a man by the name of uh, Zhao Shuzong, who is the head of China's State Forestry Administration. He made the announcement and he said, quote, we will strictly control ivory processing and trade until the commercial processing and sale of ivory and its products are eventually halted. This is the first time that China's actually committed to phase out its legal domestic ivory industry. So, Peter, I was pretty kind of surprised and actually very happy about it. Um, but the rest of the world was mixed. Some environmentalists like Peter Knights of Aid said it was fantastic and this is what he's been fighting for. Others said, let's wait and see. What was your reaction and the International uh, Federation for Animal Welfare? What was their reaction, the International Fund for Animal Welfare? What was your Pretty official sure. reaction?
1: The, uh, the, well, I guess the first reaction was, uh, to be perfectly honest, a fist bump. Uh, it was uh, incredible news on a Friday. As you said, it can be a little bit difficult to find out what's exactly going on behind the scenes, so there's going to be a range of opinion, but over here, I mean, we understand that nothing that comes out of uh, the Chinese administration is unscripted, that this was something that had been kicked around behind the scenes and uh, is at least some indication that there is going to be a policy change, which is fantastic news. On the other hand, you have to look at some of the things that were left out, particularly What's the timeline for implementation? Uh, what sort of loopholes might remain? These are questions that I expect will get answered over the next weeks, months. Uh, hopefully, not stretching into years. But uh, as soon as we know more information, I think that the conservation community is is probably going to be pretty excited about what's going on over there.
2: It seems to me that one of the big achievements is that this distinction between legal ivory and illegal ivory as uh, you know kind of has, has been a, a big problem over the years um, because it's so difficult to to, to say which is which it's so difficult to distinguish between them. Mm. Um, do you feel that this is now is that this is a significant step in the direction of making all ivory illegal basically? It it certainly
1: sounds like it. Uh the legal versus illegal debate has really taken center stage here. We've, we've done investigations of China's ivory markets, and so of other groups. We've found that uh, a lot of the ivory that's being sold, perhaps the majority of ivory that's being sold, is, uh, comes with counterfeit documentation. So for those of your listeners who aren't aware, China has a system where uh, they can purchase legal ivory as long as it comes with a registration document. And those documents can be forged or can be held back uh, if, uh, say, the retailer wants to sell it uh, to somebody but offers them a slight discount in order not to take the certificate with them. That allows them to reuse the certificate. The system is broken. Obviously, what's going on is a lot of laundering of illegal, presumably recently poached ivory, into the legal market. And so for the State Forestry Administration in China to say, uh, that they're going to phase out the production and trade entirely is a bit of a tacit acknowledgement of that fact.
0: It's interesting because you mentioned about a fist bump. And, and this was something that I, I kind of heard again in the reaction from the Western environmental community, both in Europe and in the United States, that there, there is a little bit of sense of pride that they think that their pressure on the Chinese government is somehow responsible for what the, the policymakers in Beijing are doing. My sense, and I, I don't mean to to take away anything of the hard work that I saw and others have done, but I also know that the Chinese political system is one that is very well insulated from criticism from the outside. And That's that very true. they don't, you know, whether you're talking about Taiwan or Tibet or human rights, you know, animal welfare, really, they don't really care that much. I, I'm going to go back to what Peter Knight's, the head of WildAid, uh, and his, what his kind of thinking is on this, that... A lot of this movement is because of demographic shifts within China and that there's public opinion uh, on a generational line that has changed and that young people don't believe that the consumption of ivory is cool. They don't believe that it's something that is representative of a civilized society. I mean, we're seeing it in terms of in southern China with the cruelty towards dogs and some of the dog meat festivals that young people are turning on those traditions as well. And so there was political room given in China for the leadership to make this change, not because of pressure from the likes of IFA and WildAid, but because there was not a lot of support within China to continue this. And they saw that the political repercussions in Africa were starting to really mount. Where do you think the pressure points came from uh, in order to prompt the decisions for them to do this? And of course, it's all speculation because we don't know, as you pointed out at the top of the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I would guess that it, it, that you're right that this is not about Western values being uh, imposed on on China or any of the other Southeast Asian consumer nations. I think what what's really going on is that IFA institutionally and WildAid institutionally uh, serve as um, models. There, we we don't have uh, you know I'm not over there in China talking to the government. We have. Uh, folks that were born and raised in China that are part of the system that care deeply about the culture, uh, who are IFO employees, who are working under the banner uh, of this organization and others to effect the changes that they think are necessary. So it's not as if uh, American diplomacy is solving the problem. This is really a, a homegrown uh, opposition to ivory consumption. It is a success, if it comes, uh, that will be Almost entirely uh, on the uh, on the basis of the work that those folks over there have done, uh, we're happy to be allied with them. I, you know, having colleagues in Asia like Grace Gabriel, uh, Jeff He, who are doing some of this amazing consumer demand uh, reduction work, uh, is inspiring to me. And I think that it's a two-way street. That we can say, when China does something like this announcement on Friday, uh, that it's time for the U.S. to act. It's not. It's not that uh, the U.S. needs to lead on everything. Sometimes. Uh, if China steps up, then we have, uh, we have some important lessons to learn as well.
2: So how will this announcement um, shift I-4's own strategies in relation to Ivory? Um, how is it going to... Obviously, it's still too early to tell. As you, as you said, there isn't a really a timeline yet. We don't know when, what is going to happen. Um, but once we have a, a, slightly more, a slightly clearer idea, how will I-4 then move on to the next stage? What will that next stage be for their own campaigns?
1: Well, consumer demand has been typically seen as the driver of the elephant poaching crisis. We have been working under the assumption that if you can put a, a limit on that demand, if you can start to tamp it down, that the problem by itself will not, not go away immediately, but that the pressures will be much, much less on elephant populations. We have projects in Africa, uh, in Amboseli National Park, in Malawi, uh, various other places that are directly focused on habitat protection. I think we'll probably spend a lot of a uh, lot more effort and time there. Not that we're not doing uh, all we can at this point, but um, I think there's more more that can be done. I think you're going to start to see uh, a focus beyond just African elephants. There are many many species that are affected by poaching. Uh, consumer demand is not simply for ivory. There's pangolin. There's rhino horn tiger skins, the, the vast gamut of, uh, of wildlife uh, that's being pressured right now. It's, it's not just climate change, it's not just habitat loss, it's actually uh, hunting for these materials.
0: Well, as we said, the timing of this announcement was rather unusual because I was actually expecting it to happen much closer to December, which is the time of the FOCAC summit in South Africa. That's the forum on China-Africa relations that happens every four or five years. And this is going to be a particularly important summit. And so it kind of came out of the blue. But another key milestone that's coming up is bilateral trade talks between the United States and China are going to be happening in a couple of months. And as part of the dialogue between the U.S. and China, ivory apparently is actually on the agenda, uh, according to the Guardian newspaper. And I think that's a very interesting perspective as well, is that this might be fitting into a broader geopolitical dialogue uh, between the U.S. and China. Now, here let's shift our attention, because, you know, Peter, you brought up the question of the United States. And this is, in fact, how I kind of came up cross you, as I was listening to this fantastic podcast uh, on, from done by the PBS NewsHour. Uh, it's called Shortwave, hosted by P.J. Tobia. And you were part of a podcast that he did called Why U.S. Rules Aren't Stopping Illegal Ivory Trade at Home. And in this podcast, you helped set up kind of the scope of the problem and in some ways why China is actually more advanced in its policymaking than the United States. Let's take a listen.
1: The African elephant could be extinct within a decade. Between 2010 and 2012 alone, 100,000 African elephants were poached, killed for their tusks. That's a dead elephant every 15 minutes, much
0: faster than they can reproduce. Much of the blame is usually pointed at the world's largest
1: consumer of elephant tusks, China. But what about us? Is there a market for ivory in the United States? We do have a major, major market here in the United States. Some reports have placed it as high as the second largest in the world. Peter LaFontaine is a campaign officer for the International Fund for Animal Welfare, the IFAW. Without reforming our system, it's really hard to point the finger at China, which on paper has potentially better rules than we do. So Peter, here you said
0: that China has... Uh, potentially better rules than the Americans do. And I think that will come as a very, very big surprise to a lot of people because when it comes to ivory and it comes to uh, animal welfare protection in general, uh, people in the United States, the United States government and – Uh, particularly American environmental groups, tend not to have an enormous amount of self-reflection on this kind of thing. And yet the ivory laws and the amount of resources that the U.S. government affords to ivory and wildlife protection and and customs enforcement is actually going down, according to the Washington Post. So if you can help us put this global ivory trade in perspective that China is clearly – the biggest market for it, and one of the most important players. But the Europe and the United States are also very significant in their market size.
1: Sure. I I think you have to look at uh, not just what's happened in the last couple of years with the most recent poaching crisis, but also historically. Uh, China has definitely leapfrogged uh, the United States and Europe to become the major consumer of ivory, but for decades... Uh, hundreds of years, the United States was at the top of the list. And we still have a sizable market demand here. Uh, You can look at the items that are being seized at the borders, uh, talking about thousands of shipments uh, perhaps every year uh, of ivory that could be coming from recently poached elephants in in Africa. It's not just tourists bringing across uh, goods they bought at the local market. It's also large-scale shipments, uh, sometimes on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, uh, but I would clarify that, that when we're talking about, um, market size, uh, there's a difference between that and, uh, destination, uh, you know, who's at the top of the list right now for, uh, illegally poached ivory being, being brought into the country on, in any given year. I think most indications right now are that you have China, obviously right there at number one, there are countries such as, uh, Vietnam, uh, Thailand who have, uh, been shown to have some of these large-scale seizures of um, you know tons of ivory at a time. The United States isn't necessarily uh, in the number one, number two, number three position. Uh, there was a United Nations Environment Program report in 2013 that put the United States as the second biggest market, but it does appear that that market is shifting uh, with the uh, with the advent of, of better better rules in the United States it's just easier for traffickers to uh, take it elsewhere
2: um on that point i wonder if we could flip it over um do you um are you confident that that uh, reduction are, um, in demand for ivory in key markets like the us and china will directly translate into less poaching actually on the ground um People from the Convention for the International Trade on in Endangered Species have, you know, kind of in response to the china, the the this kind of announced China ban, said that, well, you know, kind of ivory trade is now so so integrated with 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 militia groups and terrorist groups that they that it might not necessarily translate into less poaching. That that there's a kind of industrial uh, kind of poaching poaching complex kind of that is developed in, in in Africa, and that they it might just simply find other markets. Like, how how do you feel about that?
1: Um, I think it's a it's a reasonable question to consider. Uh, I. Think think that most economists would probably tell you that even if we shut off the tap entirely in terms of consumer demand right now that it would take a little bit of time for that uh, market signal to get back to poachers in Africa. I mean we've we've seen over the last 5 or 10 years a, a remarkable uh industrialization of this process, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is amazon.com shipping ivory out to you on uh, you know, a 24-hour basis. Stuff takes time to get back from the savannas to the ports to uh, uh, to the consumer markets eventually. Um, I think that, you know, our, our assumption has been that as soon as people stop buying ivory in, in large scale, that that will translate. It might take a little bit of time, uh, but when there's no money to be made, there's there's no incentive for poachers to Uh, in many cases, their risk their lives for uh, shooting an elephant.
0: Well, that may be the case, but ivory is worth more than gold on a per ounce basis. Um, And so now by constricting the market, isn't it going to force the price up even more? I mean, couldn't there be actually um, a counterintuitive response here that now people can't get it in China so it's that much more valuable, so it drives the poaching that much more because people will have to go to the black market to get it?
1: I don't think that's going to hold. Um, Ivory is is a sort of public demand issue. It's it's not like cocaine uh, where there's going to be a black market for it regardless because there's a use for it outside of the public arena. Ivory is about displaying. It's about um, sort of announcing to the world that you have uh, the money to pay for these intricate carvings. It's about uh, collectors who want to be part of a, a larger community of collectors, whether it's netsukes or canes or what have you, as soon as that public uh, element of the ivory trade is uh, considered no longer kosher, for lack of a better word, uh, the demand will go down. We have done surveys of uh, Chinese uh, citizens that have found pretty unequivocally that as soon as the if, – if the Chinese government were to ban the sale of ivory – that that would be all it would take for them to no longer consider it a uh, a reasonable purchase. It's um, it's unlikely that a black market, a significant black market would emerge to take the place of the legal trade. And, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it's really this legal trade and the confusion, the sort of blurred lines between legal and illegal that have caused the problem in the first place. I think if uh, in a perfect world, if you could create a system where legal ivory trade was not permeable, where there was uh, strict control of, of legal items, you know, maybe it would work uh, to be able to have that sort of a system in place. Unfortunately, there are just too many ways, too many pathways for illegal ivory to be laundered into the market. And that's why it's fallen apart. That's why in places like China, where there is a, a registration system and theoretically a, a, a decent system in place that allows for that trade to occur, uh, that poaching is still being driven by consumer demand. It's because people are confused. People don't understand what the rules are and how they should follow them. But as soon as you get a better system in place, that goes away.
2: Well, Peter Love, oh, go ahead, Douglas. Oh, so, sorry, week. just just one f- final small question. Um, one of the interesting, you know, kind of factoids about about the demand for ivory in China has been that people, you know, kind of the, the demand is driven by or supported by this perception that people apparently have that um, that elephant you know tusks just simply fall out you know kind of like Mm, like milk teeth basically and that you know kind of that you don't necessarily have to kill an elephant for um you know to get a tusk um is that part of the of the perception about ivory in the u.s as well is there is there a kind of a lack of awareness that every single ivory object equals a dead elephant or is it simply that the demand kind of leapfrogs that that particular reality and people just want it
1: well, I mean, you bring up a great point. Um, the idea that, that uh, elephants don't have to die for their tusks is something that, uh, well, let me let me take a step back. I think if I were to guess that most Americans don't even have the association between ivory and an elephant, that it's not even that they think it came from an elephant that's still living and breathing. I think that they see it as a uh, a material that has some exotic value, like ebony or something, that is completely divorced from this animal that's walking around the savanna. Um, in some ways, that makes it a, a harder marketing uh, plan for for folks like myself. How do you convince uh, an American uh, to, to pay attention to the problem in the first place and then to make a, a behavior change if they don't know the problem exists? At least in China, uh, as you say, we've, we've found that uh, when you can start getting people to understand that uh, ivory comes from a dead elephant and not just a living elephant that shed its teeth, uh, that becomes a much easier task to get them to change their, their perception and their behavior.
0: Yeah, and consumer awareness is not the end-all, be-all because there's been a lot of consumer kind of campaigns about sweatshop labor for fast fashion, mm-hmm. H&M. Uh, mango, some of these other kind of brands, and yet people still buy them about a lot of the, you know, the crap that's made in Walmart, which comes from countries where I'm at in Vietnam, where there's, you know, questionable labor standards, people still continue to buy it. Uh, You know, the the, the fruits and vegetables that you eat in Washington, D.C. are oftentimes picked by substandard labor that's often illegal, yet people still continue to buy it. So I'm not sure that just by educating people, that will actually lead to a reduction in consumption in the United States because those have failed in so many other verticals
1: yeah you're absolutely I right it's uh, it's also it's not just consumer demand it's it's getting better laws in place right now. we don't have any system uh, to control the ivory trade in the u s and we really need to work toward uh, toward getting that in place
2: I think it's also you know kind of it it, it depends on shifting cultural You know, currents, um, you know, kind of where certain things just as in the China case, certain things just fall out of favor. Um, You know, kind of the I I, I can understand why people don't want to engage with sweatshops, you know, kind of labor for fast fashion, for example, because they need clothes, you know, kind of and and kind of good clothes are expensive. But a a good a good example. They don't want to pay for the
0: clothes. They won't they won't pay another dollar or two for for higher quality labor.
2: Yeah, but I mean, sometimes you know, a lot of a lot of people also in the U.S. simply can't also afford, you know, kind of to to pay that that two or three or five dollars more. You know, I mean, you know, kind of Washington D.C. for example is a city where where there are a significant number of people who, who find would find it difficult to actually budget that in on a on a monthly basis. But yeah, what are I
1: talking about? I mean, you're talking about two very different markets. I mean, these are this is a uh, a luxury market for ivory versus everybody needs clothes, everybody needs fruits and vegetables. That's fair.
2: Exactly. I I think a better, you know, kind of actually a uh, maybe a a better um, comparison is with diamonds. You know, kind of because Hmm. diamonds are, you know, kind of they, they, they carry enormous monetary value but they carry more particularly enormous cultural value um and you know kind of so it's very difficult for us to think of of a diamond being you know kind of carrying the blood of of, you know kind of a a person in the drc because we're so used to thinking of them as expressing love and engagement and marriage you know kind of so so you know kind of at least in the case of ivory i think those cultural ties have shifted i don't think we have a very coherent you know, kind of sentimental value that we link to ivory. It's simply l- exotic and luxurious. You know, kind of – so I think, you know, something like diamonds is actually would be a much harder not to crack um, culturally than than something like ivory. Well, let me make my final point here. And, and, and
0: this is, again, my frustration with the U.S. environmental and wildlife conservation movement as a whole present company excluded possibly here so you know forgive me if i but the amount of hostility and energy that is directed towards china and its behavior justified as it is i totally get it but let me just read a couple statistics here about the united states there are fewer than 330 fish and wildlife inspectors and agents that patrol the us the largest us ports which is exactly or more or less the same number as 30 years ago despite the fact that the volume of trade in the United States has skyrocketed. Now, get this. There are only six, six U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service inspectors and four police agents who search the uh, JFKs, that's the New York City airport's uh, massive cargo facility each year. We're talking 10 people to do all of the enforcement for wildlife protection uh, coming into New York City. And I guess this is the point that i that I kind of make, which is I hope that the indignity and the outrage that people understandably and justifiably have for towards China is directed towards the White House. And Congress in the United States, because the United States is not doing enough. And yet American environmental groups and even American citizens get on Facebook, get on social media, and have no problem whatsoever condemning everybody else. When I just think it just it just outrages me to see how little Americans can reflect on their own country's uh, behavior, when in fact, it's in many ways just as bad as you pointed out our legal structure, the fact that there is no penalty and legal system for cross-state and interstate transfer of ivory and transportation of ivory shows you that we have a lot more to do on our public policy side. Final comments from you, Peter.
1: We do. I I think that you you said it incredibly well. Um, Fortunately, and, uh, you know, take this with a grain of salt, we've seen this uh, progress dragging out a little bit too long, but the Fish and Wildlife Service here in the United States has started to Take some incredibly important steps toward controlling our domestic trade they've already stopped imports and exports of all ivory they have uh, started to create a rule that would uh, make it much tougher to sell and buy ivory uh, in the United States and uh, even more regionally states like New York and New Jersey have banned outright or with some very limited ex- exemptions uh, the ivory trade within their state borders I think more of that is necessary um, I think it's an acknowledgment that the U.S. is part of the problem. But, you know, it really is about taking an inward look and seeing what we can do to help uh, protect these species. And it's not necessarily about putting the pressure on everybody else to change their pattern.
0: Well, ivory is one of the key issues in the China-Africa relationship, and there are some real key things that are going on right now, some very important milestones. We will see, of course, if this actually leads to a substantial reduction in Chinese ivory consumption. But from a policymaking point of view, this is the kind of steps that need to happen. And this is how public policy actually unfolds in China, much like it does in the United States. These are big governments that do move slowly, Rhetoric is the first and most important step, and at least this past year, with the announcement of the one-year ban now coming on the permanent ban leading up into the Focac Summit in December, um, I think there's some room for optimism, but as Peter pointed out, we're going to have to wait and see what the details are in terms of the exceptions, the timeline, and whatnot. But at least this is an important first step. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. One of the things we like to do at the end of every show is kind of uh, introduce people to where they can stay in touch with the work that you're doing. If you have uh, either a personal Twitter uh, that you kind of – that people can follow or, more importantly, to follow the work of what IFAW is doing, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you guys?
1: Uh, Sure. I I think it would be great if uh, your your audience went over to ifaw.org we handle many issues. It's not just elephants. Uh, it's wildlife trade more generally. It's uh, companion animals, animal rescue. I think there's, there's something out there for everybody that cares about wildlife and animals.
0: And Cobus, what's the best way for people to connect with you?
2: You'll see me on our Facebook page where we update China-Africa news stories 24 hours a day. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And
0: you can find me on Twitter as well at E-Olander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm updating the top China-Africa headlines almost every day. Also, for those of you who speak Chinese and follow Weibo, our second largest audience, uh, Kobus, is now in China, which is very exciting. Uh, you can find us at uh, Weibo... We would love to hear from you in Chinese. Uh, and to get your comments on the podcast, and also to engage in this discussion, what do you think about the the, the announcement of the new ban? Uh, again, so much of the pressure for the ban on ivory has come from social media and from young people in China. So we would love to hear from you. And if you speak English and you want to follow this podcast, just go over to iTunes and you can find us just by looking for China Africa Project. We'll come right on up there. And if you could leave us a review and a vote, that would be fantastic, uh, as we appreciate it and will help others find the podcast in the future. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.